Thank you, John. This Fourth uh, of July, I would appreciate it if during your celebrations with family and friends and barbecue that you would remember who it is that birthed this nation. We have wandered far from our roots, and there are voices that are loud and boisterous today that are shouting at this and shouting at that, and nobody seems to be standing up for God. And I would ask of you tomorrow during your celebrations, especially that you remember God and that you bow your heads in prayer and say, thank you, Lord, for not only the food that we partake, but for the country that we were born into, the country that you have given us to be good stewards of. Every single founding document of this nation refers to God, and there is no other nation in the world today that can say that. Not one. Every single one of our founding documents refers to God Almighty, the creator of the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the dry land. That is the foundation of this nation. That is the only hope of this nation. So as we look down at all the primaries that are going on now and voting in, in, uh, in November, I would ask this of you. Vote as a Christian for Christian values. And if there is a party or a person that does not adhere to God's principles and values, vote them out. The last, uh, the, the last primary, only 23% of El Paso County turned out. I guess 75% didn't care. I don't want you to be a part of the uncaring remnant that doesn't care if godly people are ungodly, people get voted into office. I want you desperately to care. We're one of the few remaining nations in the world where you can have a say as to who gets into office. We're not a dictatorship. We're not some third world country run by in a banana republic. You have the opportunity to put godly people into office. Why in God's name would you not? Vote. Vote godly principles. Go vote for godly people. Read what the party platforms are, and if they don't line up with God's Word, they are to be rejected. I don't care whether you're traditionally a Democrat, Republican, or Independent. Stand up for God more than your political party. With that said, <laughs> we are this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 1, if you would like to turn there. Give thanks with a grateful heart, Scripture tells us. So tomorrow, today, every day of the rest of our lives, as long as we are here on this earth, let's give Him glory and honor and praise and always remember Him who began this nation. What Paul is doing with Timothy is he's not only giving him a slug full of advice on things to avoid, things to teach, things to preach, and warnings about those that teach other things out there. To me, I've, I've looking at these pastoral epistles now, so-called because both Timothy and Titus are indeed pastors, but more than that, Timothy especially is a representative of Paul. And sometimes he would be preaching, sometimes he was itinerant, sometimes he was with Paul on his journeys. He filled a wide variety of roles. Quite frankly, he reminds me of the people that we've got serving in this church. They just serve. They don't need a name. They don't need a title. They don't need something to dignify them. They don't have initials after their name. They're just servants. Hey, I really need you to serve in the nursery today. Could you do that? Absolutely, Pastor Jim. Be glad to. Need you to preach next Sunday morning. Absolutely. Be glad to. Teach a men's group. Lead praise. Love to, Pastor Jim. I'll tell you what, the church needs those kind of people that are willing to wear as many hats as necessary to meet the need. It's not always about a spiritual gift. Taking out the trash is a need, though not a spiritual gift. Changing diapers. Maybe it is a spiritual gift. I just didn't see it in the gift list. I'm not sure that I have that gift, but sometimes it's a need. And you, a servant's heart just says, I want to meet that need. I see in a real sense that, that Paul has been discipling Timothy his whole life. He's been pouring into his life. Don't you wish you could have sat under Paul's teaching? How'd you like him to be your spiritual father? How would you like to hear what he has to say? He wrote half of the New Testament, and every time you open up any one of the books that he wrote, I think, if you have the heart for it, he's discipling you. He's discipling me. 
There's room for growth in, in every single one of us. So I, I kind of am looking at these pastoral epistles as more of an elder father figure spiritually to these men who's just pouring into them, who's just pouring into them. I look at Paul and I go, Paul, I want to be more like Paul. I want to have the heart of David, but I want to have the ministry of a Paul who just would drop everything to go anywhere at any time to do the, the Lord's will and work. He says that in verse 12 of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, if you'd like to look at that passage. Paul has been walking with the Lord somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 plus years as of this writing. This is a guy who's got some miles under his sandals. This is a guy who has gone through hardship, has been whipped, beaten, imprisoned, left for dead, stoned, shipwrecked, you name it. It has happened to him. He outlines in the Corinthian epistles the many things that he went through, things similar to what you and I go through in life. Life is fraught with peril. Stuff happens that we didn't see coming. But know this, it didn't surprise God. It never does. And I'm here to tell you that his grace is still sufficient he loves you. He'll see you through every single trial. He loves you. But in your trials, Satan will try to get you to question that. Stand on your faith. Walking with the Lord a third of a century. He says in verse 12, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, Timothy, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You can almost touch Paul's heartstrings here. He starts out by saying in verse 12 in the original language, it's very emphatic thanks. I thank God. I, this was a man whose heart was known th for thankfulness. If there is anybody in the New Testament who had David's heart for praise, worship, and thanksgiving in the Old Testament, it is Paul. Every time you turn around, he's giving thanks to God for this. Thanks to God for that. You can always choose to give God thanks. It's so easy to get in a negative mindset, isn't it? Oh, this is happening, and this is falling apart, and my health, and headaches, and jobs, and people, and the list goes on and on. But can you find something to be thankful for? Can you say that regardless of what happens at, in Walmart's parking lot, God still loves you? Can you say that I can, though food prices are rising, God's still on the throne? Can we say that regardless of my job situation or my family situation, I'm still going to heaven? I'm saved? Eternity is mine? Ah, we have so much to be thankful for. This season that we're in today on our calendar should engender to each one of us a thankful heart. Thankful for the country we live in, thankful for our freedom, but most especially thankful for what we have in Christ Jesus. That should dominate our conversations tomorrow. Not minutia about the, the historical details of the founding of this country, but thanks that God founded this country with godly people. Godly people wrote the Bible for us. Godly people here are the example for you and I. Oh, I want to be this godly person known for thanks. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord he had bowed his knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ over 30 years before on the Damascus Road as God knocked him off his high horse. Lord is a New Testament way of, of saying boss. He's your ruler. He's your overseer. He's your boss. He's the one who makes important decisions in, in your life. But do you call him boss? Is he, in fact, your Lord? Is he the one that calls the shots? In your life? Is your life submitted to him? Is every decision that you face prayed about and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done? That's what it means for him to be your Lord. And he is thankful to Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that thanks is so emphatic. You know what he does next? He shares his testimony in under 30 seconds. 
It's almost like he, because he's a thankful Christian, he's thankful for what God has delivered him from. He remembers who he used to be in his B.C. days before Christ. It serves to keep him humble. It serves to keep him humble. Strength. Strength to strengthen within to empower. Because where God calls, God empowers. And he keeps on empowering. That's what Paul says. He's given me strength. That he considered me faithful. If God calls us to do something, he can be counted on to be faithful, to give us the ability to do it. When you offer up that prayer, Lord, give me something to say to this person in this situation that will help them. Help me to bless them. Help me to encourage them. This was Paul's heart in Ephesians 3.16. He says, I pray that out of his, God's glorious riches, that he may strengthen you. Paul said, I've already received the strength of God. I know what that feels like, that power, that dynamic, that energy, that enthusiasm. There's a word for you, enthusiasm, literally entheos in Greek, in God. You want to be an enthusiastic Christian? Make sure that you're in God in that moment. Every one of us should be an enthusiastic Christian, which has nothing to do with emotional makeup and everything to do with your walk with the Lord. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, dunamis, dynamite, together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love surpasses knowledge. doesn't matter what you know. It matters who you know. Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. Never try to impress people with how much you know. That's arrogant, prideful, and belittling to the other person. That you may be filled, with the filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Boy, Paul just breaks in once he realizes who God is, how much God loves this sinner named Paul and you and I. He just breaks into these doxologies left and right. Oh, praise God in heaven. God is so good. He is so merciful. He's so kind. I hope that happens often in your life. I hope you say, God is so good. Thank you, Lord. Be a thankful Christian. Philippians 4.13 reminds us, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Boy, that's a promise you just want to hang your hat on. I can do all things. It doesn't say you can do them by yourself. But as you pray, as you seek his face, he gives you the strength and empowers you to face whatever life throws at you. He wrote the Colossian believers in chapter 1, verse 9, and says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you, Paul says, and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this, that you may live a life that is worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. That's the goal of your life, pleasing God. God doesn't give you worldly entertainments for you to waste time. We've wasted far too much time on trivial hobbies, interests, computer card games, world of warships, Halo, the list goes on and on about all the nonsense that we waste our time on. And you look back and you go, how many countless thousands of hours could I have used more profitably spiritually instead of these stupid time wasters? Do you know what the worst one of all is? TV. My guess is this, that you watch more TV in hours than you do reading your Bible and praying and going to church combined. 
because the average American does. That reflects our priorities, doesn't it? Is God my priority? Then how come I spend six hours a day watching TV and I can barely find five minutes to read His Word before I head off to work? What you spend your time on reflects what your true priorities are. And I would encourage you to just do a little self-analysis, not by way of condemnation, but you, if you want to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, should not we look at our priorities and where we're spending our time? We may not have much money, but we all have 24 hours a day that we can do God's will in. What do we spend our time on? Understand, Satan wants you to waste as much time as you can. So he will try to get you to obsess with hobbies. Hobbies when you're younger, distractions when you're older. They're all time wasters. Reading romance novels or watching that trivial garbage on TV where this enemy subtly feeds you that the lie that adultery is okay and sexual promiscuity is okay because the, it's called romance instead of lust. We buy into these time wasters that rob us of, a, of time that we could spend much more fruitfully. Paul says to the Colossian church that if we're walking in Christ, if we're filled with his Holy Spirit, if we're striving to live a life that's worthy to him, then we will be bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that we can have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Hmm. I love what Jesus had to say to the faithful church at Philadelphia in Asia Minor back in the first century. It's recorded for us in Revelation 3.8 where Jesus said, can I paraphrase this passage? I know what you waste your time on. He says, literally, I know your deeds. But in the context of what I'm trying to share with you, just imagine Jesus saying, I know where you waste your time. I know the trivial pursuits that are meaningless. They serve as nothing more than distractions and do not profitably serve you well. And yet we give so much of ourselves to them. If you watch more TV than you read your Bible and pray, you need to reanalyze your priorities. You know that Jesus loves you, but do your actions show how much you love him? Or is it just a book that you pick up on Sunday morning? And say, so oh, I'll follow Pastor Jim in the Word of God, but it lies on the table for the rest of the week? Jesus wants all of your heart. Satan wants all of your time. Don't give it to him. So Paul will load up these pastoral epistles in a nutshell by saying, make sure that you spend your time profitably because time is short. Jesus is coming soon. The world situation all around us tells us that with the rise of Russia's military might and China's sable rattling and rogue nations like North Korea and Iran wants to nuke everybody as soon as they can come up with the means to do so. These are the last days. Jesus told that faithful church at Philadelphia, I know that you have a little strength. I know. These are hard times. You know, times of economic uncertainty and political upheaval and global catastrophism. Jesus said, I know you, the faithful church, have just a little strength. I know that. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Then in verse 11, he says, I'm coming soon. In other words, just hang on to the little strength that you have. Go to the Word of God so that you could be strengthened more regularly. Devote yourself to God and His Word and to prayer, and He will strengthen you to meet the times that are upon us. Otherwise, we will give way to fear and doubt and insecurity. We have little strength, but he has abundant strength. How much strength do you need? <laughs> He's got enough strength. He created the universe and didn't break a sweat. He's got plenty of power. He's got plenty of strength. To, maybe we don't have because we don't ask. 
God, strengthen me. Strengthen my heart. Strengthen my faith. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon me, Lord, that the fruit of my life would be love and joy and peace and patience. You know the fruit. Our reward is sure if, big if, we do not give up, Galatians 6, 9 says. Paul described himself as faithful, and he says, Christ has considered me faithful. Look again at verse 12, appointing me to his service, to his service, not mine. The world is self-serving. You're not of the world. Stop feeding your flesh. Don't do it. Time's short. Don't waste so much time in front of the TV or in front of the computer or on your hobbies, all of which will perish. There is none of those things that you're taking to heaven with you. You realize that, don't you? Your ski boat, it's staying behind. Yeah, your truck, your trailer, your house, your, all of the, your stuff. We somehow or another got the impression our job here in the world was to acquire stuff. Once we had enough stuff in our houses and they were overstuffed, we buy storage units and we stuff them full of stuff that we don't have need of. We buy more and bigger storage units to stuff stuff where we don't have any more room to stuff stuff. Why? Why, why, why? Storage units going to burn. Your hobbies, they're going to burn. Nobody cares in heaven how much iron you pump, how good you look, how tight your flesh is, or what clothes you wear. Nobody there is impressed with that stuff. Can I tell you that? Nobody cares. Why do we care so much? Because we're fleshly. We're supposed to be in this world, but not of this world. And yet, we buy into so much of the world's values, don't we? As to what's important, what we need. I want to be faithful. God considered Paul faithful. Faithful to do his will. God's will, not his own. Can, can I be trusted by God to do his will? Versus my own? Can I be trusted by God? Big question. Verse 13, even though I was once a blasphemer, Paul shares his abbreviated testimony in just 24 seconds here, and it is to me amazing. Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. If Paul can share his testimony here in verses 12 through 14 so succinctly, we should be able to do that as well. I once was so far away from God, he got my attention through circumstances, and I surrendered my life to him. He's been my Lord since. If I can do that in 10 seconds, certainly you can. There's no reason not, not to give God all that glory. We all have a testimony, that is, how we became Christians. Be sure to share it. Don't dwell on the past. Don't try to out-sin somebody or shock them or impress them with how depraved you were. That, that's not the emphasis. Don't dwell on the past because that may have been who you were, but it is not who you are today in Christ Jesus. So you don't glorify your past. Paul says very succinctly, I, I was a wretched <laughs> blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. That's it. Didn't go into great detail. He's not trying to impress people. That's who he was, not who he is. But I noticed that in Paul applying this word to himself, a blasphemer, what it, Paul's doing is giving strong evidence in his belief of the deity of Christ. Follow me on this. To blaspheme means to speak maliciously, foolishly, or injuriously or disrespectfully of God Almighty. And surely, Saul of Tarsus, the strict Pharisee, could have never spoken blasphemy against Yahweh, the God of Israel. He could have been stoned to death for that, but he had spoken evil of Jesus. Acts chapter 9 tells us, the inescapable conclusion is Jesus is God. He had blasphemed Jesus Christ. Well, blasphemy is only aimed at God. Jesus is God then. Paul had persecuted the church. We're told that in, in Acts chapter 7, that while they were stoning 
Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell on his knees, cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul was there. Later, the apostle Paul will be his name, giving approval to Stephen's death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, mourned him deeply, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. That's an interesting phrase in the original Greek. Saul began to destroy the church. It's a term that was sometimes used to describe the ravages of a wild animal. Paul came after the church like a ravenous wild animal. Saul was a proud name, named after the first king of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin. God changed his name to Paul. You know what Paul means? Little, inconsequential, runt. So that which Paul had previously been so proud about, God says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to call you runt from now on just to keep your ego in check. I'm going to use you greatly, runt. But don't, don't forget, Runt, that it's not because of you, Runt. It's because of me, Runt. And I, God did the same thing with Adam in the beginning. You know what Adam means in the original Hebrew? Dirt. So God named the first man Dirt. Why? So it wouldn't go to his head. Hey, Dirt, come here. Could you call me something else? <laughs> Sometimes we need our ego to be put in check because sometimes we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Paul remembers his past only to the extent that it serves to keep him humble and thankful. He doesn't dwell on his past because he's a new creation in Christ Jesus. You should not dwell on your past. You should always give glory, honor, and praise to your Father in heaven. There should be an element of thanks in your heart, but don't forget your past. It keeps you humble. We're not all that. We're saved by grace, right? Not by good looks, not because we earned it or deserved it. We're saved by grace. And I praise his holy name for that. God had shown Paul mercy, he says here in verse 13, because I'd acted in ignorance and unbelief. Didn't we all? Didn't we all? Grace has been poured out upon us abundantly, alone with faith and love that are not in me, they're in Christ Jesus. I'm so glad that God didn't deal with us from the perspective of justice. Justice is getting what you deserved. If we got what we deserved, it should not be, uh, it should not be the, the roast that's on the spit tomorrow on the barbecue. It should be us in hell rotating around there because that's what our sins deserve. That's justice. That's, Paul doesn't mention that word. <laughs> he says, but I've been shown mercy. What's mercy? Not getting what you deserve. Thank God tomorrow for his mercy. Thank God for his mercy. I acted in grace and unbelief. And then he says in verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out upon me abundantly. What's grace? Grace is getting what we never deserved. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of all of our sins. The promise of an eternity with a holy God who created us. Justice was satisfied as God's wrath was poured out upon his own son, Jesus, who was paying the price our sins deserved on the cross. Jesus died so that you could live for him, not for self, not for the world. He has extended his mercy to us. We've not gotten what we deserve. His grace has been poured out upon us. He's given us that which we don't deserve. He answers the question in verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out upon me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. How were we saved? By trying to be good enough? There's a lot of Christians that come out of a, a religious background that says, well, by doing this religious ritual or that, or being a member of this church or that denomination, I'm saved. The church can't save you. It didn't die for your sins. 
Well, are you going to heaven? Well, I'm not sure. I hope so. Really? Sounds like a pretty thin thread to me. I hope I'm going to heaven. Would you like to know you're going to heaven or not? Sure. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the answer. Are you going to heaven? Well, I hope so. I try to keep the law. <laughs> no, you don't. We were all dirtbags of the world. We did what the world did. We fed our flesh. We indulged ourselves. We weren't trying to keep the law. You didn't regularly go to the Ten Commandments and say, well, I hope I didn't break this one today. Hope I didn't break that one. Well, I hope when I get to heaven, Pastor Jim, my good deeds outweigh my bad. Boy, the world thinks that way. You must not think that way. That's a lie from the pit of hell. If you have one bad deed on the scale, you go to hell apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. One sin. Well, I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad. Number one, they don't. Number two, that's not God's standard. His standard is what? Perfection. Well, who can be perfect? All of us in Christ Jesus. But that's the only way I can be perfect. Jesus gets all of my sins. I get all of his righteousness. Boy, that's the great exchange. He gets all of my junk and I get all of his goodness. I'm saved not by keeping the law. I'm saved by simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Son of God who died on the cross for me rose from the dead, ensuring my eternal destiny. He's my Lord, my God, my Savior. I bow the knee to Him moment by moment, day by day. I am His and He is mine. Can you say that? Do you know that? Do you believe that? Did you show up this morning because somebody drug you? I don't want to be your pastor, Jim. Well, maybe you just need to get saved. Maybe you need to stop fighting against God. Thought of that? What a revelation. Maybe I can simply accept the fact that God loves me. God loves you, and it's not because of your performance. It's because of His love. He shows mercy. It's because of His mercy that we experience His grace. Grace is the Greek word charis, where we get the word charismatic, where we get the word charity. We're saved by Christ Jesus, He and He alone. Verse 15, Paul amplifies, here's a trustworthy saying, Timothy, that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Thank you, Jesus. You and I are included in this. But look at what Paul says next. It is the most humble statement I've ever heard from a big spiritual leader. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul could say that because you and I hadn't been born yet. But imagine the humility of somebody who once was a Pharisee who had doctoral degrees coming out of his ears and was well-respected in the religious community. Imagine him describing himself. He says, I'm the worst of sinners. I think the closer you get to Christ, the more aware of your sins and shortcomings you are. And that, that's a good thing. True humility comes from seeing yourself for who you really are, who you really are, and seeing God for who He really is. Loving, gracious, merciful, kind, me undeserving, saved by grace. But don't ever lose that humility, please, in Jesus' name. You can minister to people when you're humble, when you're proud and arrogant, people coming, trying to get close to you. It's like a, trying to hug a saguaro cactus. All you get is the spines. You know, be humble, be gentle, be loving, be kind, because the Lord you serve is. Jesus is. Be what Jesus was by the power of his Holy Spirit. Paul says, I'm, I'm the worst of sinners. I'm, I'm, I'm the chief among sinners. And it is interesting that he puts it in the present tense. I am right here and right now. I consider myself to be beneath but pretty much everybody. I'm a sinner. Saved by grace. He doesn't elevate himself. He doesn't say, don't you know who I am? I'm an important person. I'm an apostle. Look at me. I've done this. I've done that. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he called himself the least of the apostles. In Ephesians 3, 8, he says, I'm least, less than the least of the saints. What, what humility. I think the closer we walk with the Lord, the deeper that sense of, of humility. Humility is not saying I'm a lowly worm. Humility is not saying I'm worthless. Christ saw you of such worth that he died to purchase you. Humility is seeing God for who he really is and seeing myself for who I really am. Aristotle said 350 years before Christ, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. That's humility. That's humility. C.S. Lewis put it this way, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly that evil is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. But for the Christian, it's the, it's the complete opposite. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, that famous passage, if we confess with our mouths, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's humility. It requires humility to come to the cross. It requires an acknowledgement of need, doesn't it? But know this, he'll meet you at the foot of the cross. God loves you. He loves you so much. Do not reject that love. For it is with your heart, Paul continues in Romans 10, that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess Jesus Christ is Lord and are saved. You say, yeah, but Christians still mess up. Yeah, I wish I didn't. But I'm told in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, if we claim to be without sin, we Christians, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, Christians, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His Word has no place in our lives. So Christians in humility should be constantly trying to keep things right between them and the Lord. We all mess up. We all make mistakes. We all sin, sometimes intentionally and sometimes the old nature just seems to crop up out of nowhere. Confess that to the Lord. Repent. Be restored. Be forgiven. Be washed clean once again. There is a song I've been listening to lately uh, that is I found on YouTube being done by uh, Elevation Worship and another church and there is a line in this song called Jaira. Jaira is the Hebrew word provider. I know there is no J. It's pronounced Waira in Hebrew. But the name of, of the song is Jaira. And in that song, there's a, a line in there that just haunts me. It goes like this. I'm already loved. I'm already chosen. I know who I am, but he has already spoken. Whew, there is such biblical truth in that one line. Know this, you're already, you are already loved. You're already chosen. Yeah, we know who we are, but he's already spoken. I am a child of God, <laughs> a child of God. You know, <laughs> I am so good with that. I don't mind at all being the least of his children. I'm just glad I'm getting into the kingdom of heaven, aren't you? I'm not, I'm not out to get, you know, big accolades or lots of pats on the back when I get to heaven. I just want to, I'm just glad I'm going to heaven and that all of you are going with me. I think that is glorious. What God has shown us is what Paul describes here in verse 16 of First Timothy 1. For this reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience. Wow. God's patient with you. You're far harder on yourself than God is. Don't condemn yourself. If the Holy Spirit's working on you to, to drive you to the foot of the cross again in humility, just to ask uh, to be washed clean or forgiven, some slip up or failure, that's fine. He is so patient with you, so gracious. 
as an example to those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. And that, just the truth of God's unlimited patience causes him in verse 17 to break out in this glorious doxology that's just absolutely impromptu. It's not, he's not quoting anything else. In fact, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, speaking of the unlimited patience of God, he says, it's a very terrible thing to let conscience begin to grow hard, for it soon chills into northern iron and steel. It's like the freezing of a pond. The first film of ice is scarcely perceptible. Keep the water stirring and you will prevent the frost from hardening it. But once you let it film over and remain quiet, the glaze thickens over the surface and it thickens still until at last it is so firm that a, a wagon might be drawn over the solid ice. So with conscience, it films over gradually. We tolerate a little sin a little compromise, a little pornography, a little flirtation, a little adultery, a little this, a little that, until at last the heart becomes hard and unfeeling and is not crushed even with a ponderous load of iniquity. Charles Haddon could turn a phrase. Paul's doxology in verse 17 thrills me. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Who has he been describing up to this point? Verse 12, Christ Jesus. Jesus is God. You just got to deal with that. Jesus is God. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. I've read that in Revelation 19. He's coming soon and will take his kingship over this earth. He is the king eternal, immortal to us today, invisible. He is the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's spontaneous praise and worship. Don't you love it? Don't you just love it? I mean, have you ever sat down with your Bible in the quietness of your home and, and just something stands out to you and, and, and just so puts itself upon your heart that you just say, oh, praise God in heaven. Oh, God, you are all good, all glorious, full of compassion and love and mercy. That's an impromptu doxology. And I think God is well pleased with such things. However, he, there is an admonition that he needs to close out with, and it's one that is very appointed. Starting at verse 18, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction, not only watching out for the false teachers that we've already talked about, in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight. Hold on to that for just a second. In the first century, Paul acknowledges the gift of prophecy as a legitimate spiritual gift of God needed in the church today. Modern prophecy as it's practiced today sometimes contradicts the Word of God, but biblically never did. You've got to be careful when somebody comes up to you and says, hey, thus saith the Lord, man, you need to dump that putty wagon of yours and go out and buy a new $80,000 truck. I'm not sure that that's the Holy Spirit of God talking to me if my bank account doesn't jive with that kind of reality. I remember the time when I was on staff where Chuck Smith's son, Chuck Smith Jr., a girl came up to him after one of the services and says, God told me, God gave me a prophetic word, you're supposed to marry me. And he said, well, I haven't heard that prophet's voice yet. Uh, if God can tell you, maybe he should tell me. Because, uh, and who are you? <laughs> Some people like to use this word, I got a prophecy, I got a word from the Lord for you. Well, measure it out against the word of God, the written word of God, to see if those prophecies are indeed from God or not. We all want to hear from God, but I want to make sure it's God's voice I'm listening to, not your personal opinion. A lot of people pass off their personal opinion as prophecy from God. It is not. Timothy, my son, I keep this instruction. There were prophecies once made about you. A prophecy that probably said, Timothy, God's going to use you greatly in ministry. His mother was a believer, though his father a Greek. And great things had probably been prophesied over him. That's wonderful stuff. Great prophecies were, were made over me at times past, and I've clung to those those over the years and watched them come to pass. God called me in 
into the pastoral ministry decades before I thought that was a remote possibility. <laughs> when it was first told me, I thought, you've got to be kidding. Me, a pastor? I'll bet God was up there going, him, a pastor? <laughs> but God knew. God knew. You know, I think of all of the different paths my life could have taken, and this is where it wound up. Of all of the things I could have and did do in the past that I might have pursued as a career, you know, I could have been a good doctor. I could have been a good motorcycle mechanic. I could have been a good motocross racer. I could have been a good professional uh, musician. In all of those occupations, I would have sinned more. In all of those occupations, I would have made more money. <laughs> But in all of those occupations, I would have sinned more. So maybe God called me into the ministry not so much for you, but for me. Paul felt the mantle of responsibility. I am sure that being an apostle called by the will of Christ Jesus, he sinned a lot less than he would have been if he'd have pursued his career as a rabbi. You want to pursue God's highest calling for your life regardless of what it pays. You know what I'm saying? This is really important. Sometimes, uh, you know, people will change jobs just because this one promises a nickel an hour more than the last one. What you want is the will of God because you don't want to wind up in a place where you look back over 30 years like Paul says, Man, oh, and say to yourself, I wish I'd have followed God. You follow the will of God and you will sin less. You follow your own selfish pursuits and desires, you will sin more. Be careful of that. That's what Paul is trying to tell this young, beloved son in the faith of his. He says, fight the good fight. Verse 19, holding on to the faith and a good conscience. <laughs> Where does a good conscience come from? Good conduct. Where does good conduct come from? God is empowering you, is strengthening you, that your conduct is good. That's what allows you to go to bed at night and go, it's been a good day in the Lord. It's been a good day in the Lord. Walk with Him. You'll sin less. You'll go to bed with a good conscience. You don't want a bad conscience keeping you up all night. Finally, my son. What a, this father-son relationship was born of a bond that was forged by the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God. This desire to be a disciple-maker burned in, in Paul's heart, and he took advantage of that, especially with Timothy and, and Titus. He poured himself into the lives of these young men. In Matthew 28, I remember that Jesus said in the Great Commission, as we call it today, then Jesus came to his disciples and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations. Don't just introduce them to the Lord while that's important. Make disciples that will follow the Lord for the long term. Invest in other people's lives. Whatever that process looks like is between you and God and your disciple. But you should be looking for somebody that you can pour your spiritual life into. That's why you have life and breath. God's not done with you yet. He needs you to pray for somebody. He needs you to talk to somebody. He needs you to set an example for somebody. God wants to use you. And you go, what, little old me? Yes, you. I know who I am. I'm already chosen. Uh, as the song goes, Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you don't believe in a triune God, you will have difficulty with that statement. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They coexist. They are co-eternal. They are God. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, Jesus said, and understand this, I'm going to be with you always. Everything that you do, I'll be with you. You don't have to worry about me. Prophecies had been given. Prophecy, I believe, is still alive and well. All of the spiritual gifts that are enumerated for us in several places of the New Testament, all of the spiritual gifts are legitimate and for today. 
Satan is a counterfeiter. He'll probably try to counterfeit most of them. Where there's a teaching of God, he'll raise up a false teacher. Where there's true prophecies, he'll try to raise up false ones. Where there are legitimate tongues, he will try to raise up counterfeits. That's what Satan does. That's, that's fine. But I believe the purpose of the gifts is just as necessary today as 2,000 years ago. It helps an imperfect church minister to each other supernaturally. I know that there are some that say, oh, no, there's this distinction between the sign gifts and the manifestational gifts. That's a completely man-made and artificial and false dichotomy of the spiritual gifts. It stems from a perceived notion that the spiritual gifts are not in operation today, and they're generally made by people who have not experienced the most miraculous gifts. So the tendency is if you don't speak in tongues, you tend to reject tongues as for today. If you don't move in the gift of prophecy, it's your tendency to reject all prophecy. Be careful or you'll wind up rejecting all that the Holy Spirit has for you. Spiritual gifts are poured out upon His people. But there are people today in pulpits that are biased they are anti-charismatic. John MacArthur, for instance, a man who I love and have dialogued with many times over the years. Calvary Chapels used to have a phenomenal relationship with him. But he is so vociferously anti-charismatic that now there is no love, no joy, no peace, no patience over him or his church. And the name of his church, contradictingly, is Grace Church. There's no grace. No grace for the charismatics anyway. They're all from the pit of hell, deceived by the devil. Maybe we're just trying to operate in the power of the spiritual gifts that he's given us. Our responsibility, hold on to the faith. And that's what Paul closes out with. He says in verse 19, some have rejected these and have so shipwrecked their faith. There are people that reject Jesus Christ, reject Christianity, and many of them find their way on news channels on the TV that you watch. Next time you turn on a, a news channel or an opinion channel, ask yourself, is that person saved? Is this a voice I should be listening to? Does this build me up, encourage me, or edify me in the Lord? Or does this person not know the Lord at all? Some have rejected, it says in the second half of verse 19. The verb form indicates that at some point in time, they themselves chose to reject the message of Jesus Christ. And they persisted of their own free will and volition to continue in that rejection. There are the, the, can I tell you, the spirit of Antichrist is in the world today. Don't watch that garbage on TV. If they're pagans, turn them off. they got nothing to tell you. We believe their lies. They have an agenda. Be careful. It says they have shipwrecked their faith. Aorist tense, at some point in time, active voice, they chose themselves to shipwreck their faith. In reality, means to break a ship to pieces, never to sail again. They have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. But understand that it was the choice was theirs to shipwreck their faith or not. They apparently had some form of faith to begin with, but they chose to reject it and walk away from it. And this term shipwrecked, it, it's not a term that says, well, they hit a sandbar and everything will be just fine. It means to break a ship to pieces, never to sail again. You have a, a picture of that in the book of Acts where Paul is shipwrecked. The ship they were on that held 276 souls was in the middle of a storm being driven toward the island of Malta. They were scared to death. It was night. They dropped all of their anchors, started dropping, the, dropping their sea anchors, dragging them on the floor, and then hit this sandbar, and the surf was just pounding the ship to pieces. And it says that the people on board, those that couldn't swim, gra grabbed onto pieces of the ship that were being washed ashore. 
The ship was never going to sail again. Those people like Alexander and Hymenaeus here that walked away of their own free will and volition, they had no intention of ever coming back. They broke their own ships. It's interesting today, you think, well, that was back then when nobody knew how to make ships very well. Do you realize on average today, between 48 and 168 commercial ships still sink every single year? Cruise ships, commercial liners, cargo ships. <laughs> wow. There's over 100 that's been sunk so far this year of commercial ships around the world. Paul had been shipwrecked three times, 2 Corinthians 11, 25. And can I tell you this? Those ships never sailed again. So whatever these guys did in blaspheming the Lord, Paul said they're never going to have faith in Christ Jesus again because that's what they've chosen. So Paul says, I'm going to commit them into the hands of Satan. Satan can have Adam. They want no part of God? Great. Here's the ruler of this world. How do you like that? You didn't think serving a righteous God was worth your while? How about serving a fallen demon? Your choice. But Paul is encouraging Timothy. There are some that will reject the church, reject the gospel, reject Jesus Christ. And in the face of such constant attacks against our faith, Paul reminds Timothy, God gives strength. God will strengthen you. He gives grace. He gives mercy. He gives faith. Christ came into the world to save sinners. <laughs> Any of you need forgiveness? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, haven't we? God's patience is unlimited. Christ is so merciful. Fight the good fight, as Paul tells Timothy in, in verse 18. Continue to hold on to your faith with a good conscience. Don't shipwreck your faith like these, these heretics, Hymenaeus and Alexander did. But I, I think in closing, I'd just like to share this with you, that I think every single Christian should seek to have three individuals in his life. A Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. A Paul is a father figure that you look to for spiritual advice uh, or a, a spiritual mother sort of personage that you know has been walking with the Lord a long time and you can ask him any spiritual question at all and they will point you in the right direction. Everybody needs an, a Paul in their lives. I hope you have one. Where a Paul at? Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We need a spiritual father or mother figure in your life. You must have one. You must have. Timothy did. Oh, I wish I had a Paul. God is my Paul. He's, he's fine. He works for me just great. But I also have a circle of friends that I could go to, a circle of pastors that I could talk to and tell anything at all. And they are my mentors. But secondly, everybody needs a Barnabas. You remember Barnabas, a traveling companion on Paul's first missionary trip. His name means encourager. Do you need some encouraging from time to time? Yeah. Do you have a Barnabas in your life? Do you have somebody that you can consistently turn to and go, man, they're always going to pray for me. They're always going to love me. They're always going to build me up. Everybody needs a Barnabas. Everybody is becoming a Barnabas because there's a Timothy waiting for you in the wings. You're becoming that person. You're becoming that Paul. You're becoming that Barnabas. You may be in a place this morning where I'm a Timothy. I'm sucking it up like a dry sponge thrown into a pool of water. Great. That's wonderful. But what God is doing is growing you to the point where you're going to be the next Barnabas because somebody down the line needs your encouragement. Someday you too will be an Apostle Paul. Maybe not called to the office of apostle, but you will be a spiritual father or mother, and people will look to you for advice and wisdom and godly counsel. And every time they come to you, you're going to open the book, you're going to pray with them, you're going to point them toward God and give him all glory, honor, and praise. A Paul, a Barnabas, a Timothy. We need all three in our lives, don't we? We're all in one of those places currently. But we're all growing from becoming a Timothy to being an encourager to becoming a father or mother figure in the faith that others can look up to. 
and we can continue this walk of faith. God is going to have his way with this world. Jesus is coming back soon. He's coming back for people that are prepared for his coming. That's you and I in a nutshell. So with that, can we stand and close together in prayer? I do wish you a very happy 4th of July. Give thanks for this country, for give prayer and offer it up for our spiritual leaders in this country, our civic leaders as well. Heavenly Father, we commit ourselves into your hands. We'd ask that you meet us here, that you'd bless us with strength, that you would encourage faith in our hearts. You're the ultimate encourager. You're the ultimate father figure that we can look to. We are your Timothy's Heavenly Father, and yet we need flesh and blood people in our lives that are Paul's or Timothy's or Barnabas's. You have a work for us to do. We just inquire of you this morning as to how you would accomplish that work. We realize we're all imperfect people. We are a work under construction. But we look to you. We praise you for who you are, what you're doing, and what you're going to do in, on, and through us to your glory, Father. And we offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices once again in the mighty, in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray, Heavenly Father. Amen. Amen. We're going to close in song, pups, if you would like to. God, he's already here.